Well, amen, everyone. Have a seat, and we will move into a time of teaching. And uh, then we will move to the Lord's table and celebrate uh, the promise that Jesus gave us in redemption and remember who we are made to be. But first, we'll come to some teaching, and I'm just going to tell you right up front uh, that this teaching, um, you know, most of the time when Garrett and I teach around here, we are trying to let you walk out with something, some sort of, you know, application, something you can apply. And uh, this morning's going to be a little different. I'm really going to give you something to think about and inform you. Um, And if there's any walk away on the thing, it's going to be, um, you may wish to seek out a spiritual director, a wise mentor. And I'll talk about that in just a moment, but that's really about it on that. So, this is, I'm going to give you something that I don't think I've ever heard anybody ever preach on or think about. So we begin uh, near the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the very first story of Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 26. If you brought your Bible or if you have it on your phone or, or um, um, you know, a tablet or something like that, that's great. Um, but Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 30, and just to set the stage Jesus and the disciples are in the upper room. Judas, the one who betrays him, has left. And they're about ready to depart and go across the valley out of the city over to a garden that night uh, to spend the night. This is the night of Jesus' betrayal. And so here it begins, Matthew chapter 26, verse 30. When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. (coughs) And then Jesus said to them, You all become deserters because of me this night, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Though all become deserters because of you, I will never desert you. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and agitated. And then he said to them, I'm deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little further, he threw himself on the ground and prayed. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. And then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So, could you not stay awake with me one hour? Father, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. There may be no greater prayer than this, not just for Jesus, but for all of us. Because isn't it true that most all of us have even wandered in here today wanting to know what the will of God is for our lives? Whether we acknowledge it and are aware of it and conscious of it, sometime during this week or this month or this season of life, you're going to have to wonder, I wonder what God wants me to do. What should I do? Should I marry this person? Should I date this person? Should we have a third child? Should we, you know, go into debt? Should we get out of debt? Should we move? Should I take this job? Father, let this cup pass from me. 
Not what I want, but what you want. It is a difficult thing to discern the will of God. And how do we know what God wants for our lives? And while discerning the will of God for our lives might seem to be this great mystery to all of us, understanding what God's will is is actually easier in the task to, to get to it. I'm not saying getting to the will of God is easy. I'm saying the pattern, the technique, if you want to call it that, the rhythm of how to discern the will of God has been around for hundreds and thousands of years in the Christian faith. It's just so funny that we all don't seem to want to pay attention to that, and so we've hurried on, and that's part of the reason why I probably never heard anybody teach on this. So this morning, I want to talk about something called a discernment process. The discernment process, or spiritual discipline of discernment. And I want to walk us through it, and then I also want to say something about Lakeland's elders, our leadership around here, and how we're using this discernment process to understand the will of God for the church. So we begin with an examination of Jesus' prayer that we just read. Father, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. This is not a prayer of weakness. This is not Jesus being wishy-washy or caving in or anything like that. This is actually one of the strongest prayers out there. This is a strong prayer because he is submitting to God. It's what a Christian psychologist and spiritual director, David Benner, calls a prayer of release. He is relinquishing, releasing control of his right to be God or his thought he thinks it's right to be God. It's a prayer of release. A prayer of release moves from a self-focused posture, which is saying, what's in it for me, God? Tell me what your will is because I need to know something about me, 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 me. To a posture that says, God, it's not about me. It's all about you. Benner says this is a movement from a willful heart to a willing heart. From a willful heart to a willing heart. And there is a big difference between being willful and willing. Willful says, I am master and captain of my ship. And willing says, not me, Father. All you. All you. David Benner suggests that Mary and Joseph are models uh, for what it is to be a willing heart in their roles in the birth of Jesus. Uh, And, you know, this type of willingness is hard to come by. And you can know in your own household whether or not everyone's being willful or willing because you can take a temperature, temperature in the house. And if everyone's just running about to and fro and busy and nobody's having any fun or they don't even know they're not having any fun, it's just business and schedules and so forth. And you can tell because in the morning when everybody gets up, it's all sort of bitey and barky and commanding and there's no thank yous and there's no pleases. There's no welcomes. There's not even a goodbye. It's just shoo. It's like you flipped on the lights in the middle of the night and all the cockroaches left. And that's the way the morning goes. The relational glue in the family gets thinned out when people become willful and not willing. In other words, when the relationship gets thin. The answer on the family thing, by the way, is just simply have some fun. Do nothing. A divine waste of time, as we like to call it on retreat. A divine waste of time. Busy at nothing at all. I think we call that being human. 
This is the same thing with God. It's the same relationship that we have with God. Mary responds to God, here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word, she says to the angel. Mary has become one of the most powerful women in all of history simply because she said those words. She didn't understand necessarily what was going on. She knew it was going to be bad for her being a woman that was not married and being pregnant, especially in first century Palestine. But she said, I am your servant. She was willing. Likewise, Joseph did just as God requested. He took Mary as his wife, even though she uh, was already pregnant. So now think about this, everyone. Mary and Joseph, and then later Jesus in the garden, all hear the will of God for their lives and willingly obeyed. So here's the key feature for all three, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. None let the future consequences influence their willingness to obey. I repeat, none let the future consequences influence their willingness to obey. In other words, Mary was going to be pregnant and not betrothed, not married. Joseph was going to take a woman who was already pregnant and and subject himself to not just the humiliation of it, but actually perhaps even being ostracized from the community, perhaps even from the temple. Jesus There in the garden that night, knows what's awaiting him. That that night he will be arrested, he will be mocked, he will be tortured, put on a kangaroo court trial, and then crucified the next day sometime. Every one of those three people, their greatness lies in the fact that they obeyed even though they knew terrible consequences, potential terrible consequences were coming their way. That is a powerful thing. You see, everyone... Spiritual giants are really made up of one thing. They are people who have the unique power to will one thing and one thing only. Spiritual giants are people who are made up who have the ability to will one thing and one thing only, despite the consequences. Now, of course... (laughs) No one will want to submit to a God that they think is rotten, a bad God, a mean God, an evil God, an out-to-get-you God, a hellfire brimstone God. Nobody's going to submit to a bad God. Some God who's sitting up on some big old stone throne with a big old long white beard and a big pack of thunderbolts in his hand saying like, all right, who did something wrong? You know, bam, bam, like doing that sort of thing. That's a bad picture of God. Where's the goodness of God? You have to begin, if you want to cultivate the proper uh, understanding of how to understand the will of God, discern the will of God, you have to cultivate a goodness of God. We need to cultivate a confidence in the goodness of God. God is good. In the year 626 BCE, uh, before Christ, Jeremiah, one of the major prophets in the Old Testament, the prophet, by the way, Jeremiah, who never saw his people adequately released from exile and slavery, They were in slavery for about 100 years. And then even more after that, Jeremiah never once saw success in his entire life, in all of his ministry. And this is what he says. Talk about somebody willing to will one thing and and not pay any attention to the consequences. This is what he says. And perhaps you know this verse. It's out of Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14. 
He writes this. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for harm. To give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. You will seek me with all your heart and I will let you find me, says the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where, you have, where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Oh yes, the people sinned. They disobeyed God. They ignored God. They put other people into slavery. And for that, God let them be taken away by the Babylonians into exile. But God never left them. The goodness of God, Jeremiah reminds them, is still present. You will be restored. Isn't it Jesus who taught? When a son asks his father for a loaf of bread, he doesn't give him a stone, does he? Isn't God good? Isn't the story of the prodigal son really a story about a good father taking back in a son who went off with wine, women, and song, and then the older brother can never believe that the father would ever throw a party for him, even though the father would have done it any time he asked? Isn't God good? Isn't a lot of Jesus' entire ministry going around telling the people who thought that God was all bad and, and, I mean, not in his essence, but how he treated people? And therefore, they all began to believe that they could treat each other bad? How much more God is forced than we are even for ourselves, everyone? God has a better opinion of you than you got of yourself. So we begin discerning the will of God by cultivating the goodness of God in our lives. You see, parents, especially parents of young children, this is your primary task, is cultivating the goodness of God in your children's lives. This is your job. This is why you need to, to show them a God-bathed world. You need to show the goodness of God everywhere. When the sun rises and when the birds sing, and when the bugs crawl and the flowers bloom, and when you see people having a good time, it's all declaring the goodness of God. This is why, parents, you want to teach your children to give thanks during mealtime. Because that's a moment of goodness for God. You give thanks for the food because it's a gift. You don't want them drifting into Bart Simpson's mealtime prayer, which is like, why are we giving thanks to him? We paid for it. And you sure don't want your kids going into a bad God. Because, you know, if you got a bad God thing, then your mealtime prayer, then, then God's going to be a mean old cuss of a God. And you're going to have to say to your kids, like, wow, kids, I can't believe we pried these delicious hamburgers from that mean old cranky God's hand. Wow, we really got by with one there because God's out to get us. Eat up before he finds out. Amen. <laughs> you see, everyone, this is why the hellfire brimstone gospel eventually fails to produce adequately good, healthy Christians. The hellfire brimstone doesn't produce healthy Christians. Instead, it produces fear-monger Christians, and at worst, it just produces moralists, people with a black and white list of who's in and who's out, what's right, what's wrong, you know, don't, don't, don't dance, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. <laughs> and soon enough, God hates certain groups of people 
people with brown skin and people with accents. And pretty soon people hate poor people and then they hate rich people and people with gender and identity issues. And soon enough, a, whole, a person's whole life is just going around categorizing and judging and putting everyone into a box because that fits what kind of picture of God they got. There's no goodness of God left. Just a judgmental person. Just like their God. Now, let's say you have a good view of God. Let's say you're a relatively healthy Christian, healthy person. God to you is generous. God's a gift giver. Uh, God cares for you and your family. You think God's looking out uh, for your best interest. And God is merciful to you. You have a God of grace. That despite whatever you do, it's covered over by the blood of Christ. That's a gracious God. Then allow me to introduce you uh, one of the more sophisticated discernment tools that's ever been found in Christianity. Over 500 years ago, a young Spanish general was seriously injured, uh, and he injured his leg in, in a battle. And his name was Ignatius of Loyola, he's Spanish. And during his long convalescence, trying to save his leg, which they didn't save, they had to amputate it, and so therefore his military career was over. Um, he came to Jesus while he was in the hospital, laying there with nothing else to do but think about how little future he has. And he sincerely came into this deep personal relationship with Jesus. And after he healed, he had been given a, a, a gift, really a vision of what he ought to do. And he was supposed to gather together other young men. Of course, he's a military guy, so he understands how to lead men. And he gathers together a bunch of sharp, dedicated, smart men and begins to train them up on how to understand the will of God and how to uh, bring the kingdom of God about during their lifetime. Very famous man. This group of young men that he brings together are called the the, uh, Society of Jesus. And we know them today as the Jesuits. And even to this day, they're highly uh, centered on education. A lot of colleges are Jesuit colleges, such as like Notre Dame or, for that matter, here in town, Rockhurst. And uh, Ignatius and his Jesuits studied the ancient spiritual fathers and the scriptures, and they found out that most of the time, people make life's decisions without the Holy Spirit. But the ancient fathers had said, you always lean into the Holy Spirit to make decisions. And they rediscovered how to discern the voice of the Holy Spirit. And here's what they found out. Most of us fail fail to pay attention to our heart. In other words, our feelings. But I don't mean feelings like in some, all you Jedi nerds out there, you know, I'm not saying trust your feelings, Luke. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about more of a deeper sensation, okay? A, uh, A presence of God type feeling. Now, if you're like me, I was raised to believe that feelings are way down the list on things for making decisions on, okay? First, you go with the facts, and then you go with your faith, and then finally comes feelings. And so here is Ignatius and these guys understanding that deep spirituality has put the sensing or the feeling back up to one of the primary places. And then they describe how it happens. They say, If God is good, if God has put good desires into your heart, which is another statement of faith, that God puts good desires into our heart. If this is true, 
then we can pay attention to our consolations and our desolations. Our consoling feelings and our desolating feelings is what Ignatius said. Now let me describe what consolation and desolation is. One of my current professors, Ruth Haley Barton, defines consolation thusly like this. And it's a rather thick definition as most professors would give. So we'll try and, you know, decode it here. She defines consolation as the interior movement of the heart that gives us a deep sense of life-giving connection with God, others, and our most authentic self. A deep sense of life-giving connection with God. A consolation is a deep connection with God coming out of your authentic or true self, not necessarily your false self, not the lying self, the one that lies to you, but the one that is honest with you. That's a consolation. Now, likewise, a desolation then, a desolation is the loss of the sense of God's presence. You don't sense God's presence. So you're making a decision, and one, you feel God's presence in it, and the other one, you do not feel God's presence in it, just to be simplistic about it. According to Barton, desolation can be a discouragement or a sense of abandonment by God. Anything that draws us away from self-examination and the sense presence of God. And by self-examination, we mean your, your, the ability to discern your own heart to say, is this a, am I a true person right now or am I a false person right now? Am I lying to myself or am I telling myself the truth? You see, if you're craving um, approval or security or power, those all come out of the false self. Yes, there's some health in there psychologically, and I know the psychologists and social workers in the room are all kind of freaking out right now. But I'm saying where it begins to destroy your soul when you begin to lie to yourself. This is a, it takes a lot of art, more art than it really does even thinking. Ignatius states that the consolation may be this intense emotion. And Ignatius uses the idea of fire, of a flame. And he would say, uh, a consolation is this intense emotion. It's like being inflamed with the love and the shedding of tears of love and praise. Or it could even be quiet and deep. So it can be really, really emotional or it could be really, really settled. The key component of a consolation is actually sensing the presence of God right there. Another spiritual director that I love, a theologian named Thomas Green, he believes consolation's common denominator is the peace of the Lord. Just if you want some simple answer on what a consolation is. It's, it's the sense of the peace of the Lord. So if you went to a spiritual director, which is why I stuck these two chairs up here and this little candle and so forth. If you went to a spiritual director, you would sit down and you'd face each other. And, you know... It'd be quiet, and they'd probably have you do a lot of silence, okay? And you would sit there for maybe a few minutes, and they'd probably give you, uh, like I use, one of these little palm crosses. It's a nice, smooth, kind of feels good. It's one of those tactile things, keeps you from smoking during spiritual direction. Um, you know, and you can hold it, and uh, it's something to do. They'll also usually light a candle, not just out of some sort of new age mysticism or something like that, but because of Ignatius talking about flames and they've been trained in Ignatian spirituality, but also because the, the candle would represent the presence of the Holy Spirit. And from my little vernacular on the thing, I'm like, 
it also kind of gives you something to focus on. I can't tell you how many years I've gone on retreat and I light a candle or stare at a fire. I call it caveman television. It's got one channel. It doesn't change very much. The plot's pretty predictable, but you watch it. You put a candle in a room, everyone's going to look at it. That's why we light candles on a birthday cake, because everyone knows where to look and what to sing, right? And uh, then you blow out the candles and nobody knows what to do. Except, anyway, uh, so they'll have you do that. And they'll sit there and then they'll have, the spiritual director will have you tell your story. They'll say, tell me your story. And you don't even know what your story is until you open your mouth and you start talking. And you start describing what problem or situation you're in or what's going on with your soul. You feel far from God or whatever. And you're fidgeting with a little cross and it's all kind of going that way. And you don't even know you're fidgeting with it. And then the spiritual director, who usually have to pay and they earn their money, is sitting there intensely praying for you discerning what is your consolations and your desolations in your story. Where is God present? Where is God not present? Do they have false consolations or false desolations? You're like, wow, okay. I can see why that's a hard job. They will sit there and listen to your heart and discern for you and help you figure out what's going on in your life and in your situation. And that's why there have always been spiritual mothers and fathers and spiritual giants and mentors in the Christian faith. Somebody who is practiced and learned at understanding how to understand and uh, wade through all of your feelings and so forth. You know, you don't have to have wonderful emotions, uh, positive emotions, to be sensing God's presence. It could be very dark and very deep and very, very real and very, very rich. Because not, not, not all dark feelings are, are bad by any means. I think dark feelings are often very clarifying. Very present to God. And likewise, not all positive feelings are all from God. I can tell you that on several occasions, men have come into me. And, you know, for whatever reason, they're in an extramarital affair. And they say, but the other woman brings life to me. I feel so alive. They'll say this kind of thing. And you have to ask, is the presence of God in that? Are you saying that out of your false self or out of your true self? Is that your, your one that tells you the truth or is that the one that's lying to you? Are you taking a shortcut to discovering what your real needs are? And what your real habits and addictions are and so forth? We just had a funeral here this weekend. That's why the candle's over here is for Gene Thompson. And, and I can tell you, there were a lot of tears and a lot of grief and loss. Not really what we would call good feelings, like most of us don't want to go to a funeral. But they're extremely healthy. Those are consolations. Those tears and grief and loss and the things we experience are part of the human story and a part of the human condition. They're what make us whole humans. Every one of us, folks, unless Jesus comes back, we are all going to experience death. It's a part of life. It's at the center of it. They're not good feelings, but they are consolations because God is present. Very present. These days, the church leadership, the elders, are revamping how we go about making decisions around here and how we lead the church. And just to tell you, we've always thought from the beginning that the primary gift of an elder at Lakeland 
is a gift of discernment, which we always understood is to mean like a gut sensation about what's going on. Uh, some people come in with a problem, you know, families coming apart at the seams or whatever, and you'd have a gut sensation if you're an elder about like what's going on. Or discerning like your gut sensation about a ministry thing that's coming up or something that we ought to get involved with or not get involved with or something we should start or stop doing, okay? And um, the elders are revamping this because we want to start paying more attention to our consolations and desolations. We want to get more precise about this whole thing. And there are a few things that we want to uh, figure out. And so what you'll most often find is not necessarily like, okay, bam, here's your answer. On October 12th, you need to start this ministry to special needs kids. You're probably not going to get an answer like that or like, wow, you need to refinance right now, you know, because it's at 3% and you're going to do a lot better than doing 375. You know, it's not going to be probably something like that. Instead, when you lean into the Spirit of God, you will find either the presence of God or not the presence of God. And so just for instance, the elders went on retreat a few years ago, a couple of years ago, and a three-day retreat. And I'm telling you, we had the flip chart out, and man, we were ripping through pages, and we got this ministry idea, and like, we should stop doing that, and we should start doing this, and it's all a nice big business meeting, you know? It's all going great. And then we're like, look, 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 everybody just go off and spend all afternoon I don't care if you fall asleep, you know, sometimes people around here call me the director of naps, that's okay. But I don't care, you go off, take a walk through the woods or across the fields, go back to your room, read a book, you know, whatever you want to do. Go for a run. At the end of retreat, we wrote one thing on the flip chart that we felt like the Lord was saying to us. Be intentional. Just two words. Be intentional. Not start this ministry or stop doing this or watch out for this or any of that. Just God was saying, be intentional. And that's how we left the retreat. God was present in those words. We don't know what that looks like. But we know we're supposed to be intentional. I wonder if we ever realize, folks, how much God is for us. I wonder if we realize that we have God-given desires. That the good things in life, even the desire for food and sleep, those are desires from God. Yeah, you go, that's part of my body. Like, yeah, your body's a gift from God. (laughs) I wonder if we really realize how much God is for us. Because Jesus is calling. He is tenderly calling. He is calling you home today. He is calling you to a place that says you belong here, right here in front of me, Jesus says. In a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. And we say celebrate because it's a gift. That's what Eucharist means, the good gift. You, charis, you means good, charis means gift. It's the good gift. So if the servers want to come forward, that'd be great. This table is a symbol of a banquet hosted by Jesus. It's a future expectation. It looks back to the Passover, and it looks forward to this banquet that Jesus is going to raise the chalice and say, everybody's welcome. Come to me. You belong to me. And you'll know whether or not you belong there or not. 
There's something about food, everyone. I keep going off about this all the time. There's something about food that is theological. There's something about bread and something good to eat that is so, um, so, so much the presence of God. It's a consolation. <laughs> good food is a consolation. You know, during World War II uh, in Northern Europe, a couple took in uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of orphans because their parents had been killed or sent off to a concentration camp, and these children were left behind. Little kids, real little kids. And so this couple took in all these children, and they found that if they sent the children tonight, uh, at night to bed with a loaf of bread, that they would sleep well. Now, I'm not talking like Wonder Bread, that squishy white junk. I'm talking like a good European loaf of bread, you know, the one that like is a meal with a hunk of cheese, you know what I'm saying? And they'd send them together, uh, send them to bed with that little loaf of bread, and those kids could wake up in the morning and say like, I was safe all night. Amazing what food does to us. So this communion is just a little moment where we remember that we are safe and that our world is a perfectly safe place to be. And that's why we've set this table. Would you stand with me, please, as we come and let us pray as Jesus taught us to pray with the Lord's Prayer. Join me, everyone. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial. Deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And when he'd given thanks, he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after the supper and giving thanks, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. Drink this, all of you, and you'll be a part of me. You'll be a part of the covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it and as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, Paul tells us. And that's why we do this. So when you come forward, you'll tear off a piece of the bread. Make sure it's a healthy chunk. Just don't take the whole thing. But tear off a good big piece. Dip it in the chalice. Consume it right there. You may want to go to one of the other tables where you can put your body in submission to your mind and just kneel right there to the cross. Just like Jesus said, one necessary thing is all you need. Come to the foot of the cross, Jesus. You come whenever you're ready. Amen. And so, Lord, we have come to the garden and we say, not your will, not my will, but your will. Not what I want, what you want. May we will the one thing. May we take this bread and this juice and taste it and know that you are good. And we all said, amen. Would you stand with me, please? And we'll end with one of our favorite blessings around here that we've been doing. And this will be a blessing to each other and uh, for your whole week. 
And um, so what I'd love to invite you to do is uh, just turn your palms up like you're receiving from God, because God's given us blessings. And you want to say this blessing to each other and to everybody in the room. So join me in this whole thing, everyone. Ready? May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace, everyone.